I think you've really got to think about what's going to ensure that you're going to be able to be continuing to sell stuff six months from now, a year from now, and be putting food in your mouth. Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. What is good, my fellow nerds? On the show today, we're talking with Michael Silverman, Managing Director of the Samantha Brands Group, SBG for short. SBG is an investor group that helps promising consumer brands quickly scale and develop into enduring household names. And in talking with Michael, we get a glimpse into how SBG makes it all happen. Michael is a brilliant guy, and he knows the business of CPG uh, about as well as any guest that we've ever interviewed. His firm successfully scaled brands like Wild Made Snacks and Trace Latin Foods, maker of pupusas, which are very near and dear to my heart. We dive deep into some of the commonly shared notions around marketing and distribution strategy, and why much of what you're hearing around making it big may actually be leading you down a slow and painful path of destruction. This is only scratching the surface, but in today's episode, you're going to learn what so many fledgling consumer brands get wrong about distribution strategy, why your brand building efforts may not actually be adding value to the bottom line, what marketing channels have the biggest impact on product turn, and plenty, plenty more. So let's go chat with Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on Food Marketing Nerds. My pleasure, Alex. Can you give us a little insight into your background and how you got into this line of work? You know, I've spent really all my life around entrepreneurs and investors, and so um, have been fortunate enough to grow up around a lot of burgeoning young businesses in a number of different sectors. But I've been investing in consumer CPG and food for basically 10 years. And over the course of the last five, uh, investing through Samantha Brands Group and operating a couple of our own brands and companies. And so, uh, you know, really just got into it because I've got a passion for consumer brands. I've got a passion for better for you products. And I love the way ultimately that consumers interact brands when they do a good job of creating that bond, the value that brands and those connections can play in people's lives when they find something that they're really passionate about. So enjoy investing in the space. My experience has been that it's a brutally tough space to compete in and to find sustainability in, but can be also very rewarding for those reasons I just touched on. So can you talk further about SBG and what brands are in your portfolio and how you selected those brands? Yeah. So started with a particular thesis through the proverbial shoes over the fence and went after them and made plenty of mistakes and learned plenty of lessons and have really shifted things quite a bit in terms of how we do them today. But really, I started out with the idea of there's a lot of small up and coming brands that have a difficult time going and turning into real companies where you know it might be a good product, might be a good brand, might be a talented founder, but there's a series of operational needs, capital needs, and a viewpoint of the marketplace that's often required for brands to succeed. At least that was, that was from my perspective. And so that was the thinking that led me to, to found Samantha Brands Group. And we started by our first deal was a company called Trace Latin Foods, which still, after a few different permutations here, is is still in portfolio in a different kind of way. But yeah, started out just looking for, for young brands to invest in and scale. And along the way, brought to bear a lot of big company tactics and big company you know marketing and sales ideologies. And we've sort of subscribed to, in the past, some of the sort of classic venture thinking around scale things up as quickly as possible and enterprise value will, will follow. 
and have evolved my thinking over time to shift more towards sustainability, more towards thinking about how do you go build sustainable brands where the outcome isn't binary. And, and what I mean by that is you don't just scale top line with the expectation of flipping at some point, but you actually try and build a sustainable business that can cash flow by itself and stand on its own two feet. And you know, along the way, if liquidity comes your way, great. But if the only reason you're in this business is to flip something, I think it, it winds up becoming a game of ones and zeros, which is fine if you know, you've know you got a venture portfolio of 10, 20, 50 brands and you understand that you're in pursuit of home runs and you might strike out trying and that's okay. But I realized that I wanted to have a focus on brands that can continue to exist and can create lasting value and try and do it in a way that doesn't mean just sort of this myopic focus on that top line growth. So certainly a lot of ups and downs along the way. Philosophy and thesis have shifted today. I spent a lot of time on Trace Latin Foods. I spent it on our healthy snacking platform, Wildmade, and our co-packing business, Natural Food Works. And that's most of my focus today from sort of an operational investing standpoint in consumer. Continue to look for new brands to bring into that portfolio. You know, we'd like to build up a platform that over time we can continue to acquire or merge with new brands that we can vertically integrate in our manufacturing capabilities and try and find sustainable margin and cash flow and, and brands that you know work in the niches they set out to connect to consumers in. So are there any commonalities when you're looking at the industry from an operations standpoint that are holding companies back or keeping small brands small when they really do have potential? I mean, you know, Shambiev, it's a it's a litany of, of things that you see across the board. But I think in terms of the deals that, that we look at, we've seen just an enormous amount of opportunities, you know, most of which we don't do, but of companies that kind of signed up for this, hey, let's just really focus on scaling top line. All distribution is good distribution as long as we're continuing to grow and as long as we kind of hit some magic number and everyone's got a, a different one, but as long as we hit some magic number, someone's going to come in and buy us. And, you know, we see a lot of opportunities of companies that have followed that path with sophisticated investors backing them, backing that strategy. And a lot of them get sort of halfway pregnant, if you will, and realize, ah, you know, I don't know if we're going to get the rest of the way there. We've got a good brand that people like. We've got good products. We've got good distribution. But this isn't going to be the thing that everybody wrote the checks for it to be. And so what do you, where do you go from there where, let's say, those situations quite often, your manufacturing is completely outsourced. You realize you don't have the access to capital anymore to continue to grow. Your levers in terms of increasing margin are pretty substantially reduced because you can't do much on your cogs because that's outsourced. And you know, anytime you're selling things in retail grocery, there's typically fundamental price ceilings inherent there unless you've really got some new hot thing that's that's lighting the world on fire, which is the exception, not the rule. Uh, I think that's an important thing for so many folks to remember. And so it's I think a lot of those those types of companies find themselves in, in a tough spot. And that's that dynamic kind of feeds into a commonality that we see across a lot of different brands, a lot of different stages, which is not having a ton of control over 
and the really the cost of the the growth plan that they sign up for. So, you know, you see so many people that say, oh, Whole Foods wants to take us in a new region or, hey, Safeway says uh, they'll put us in a thousand stores or, you know, this this new hot product, a bunch of buyers are, are excited about it. And those are the things that typically I think are leading a lot of entrepreneurs by the nose. But I think it's less often a question asked of, hey, do you actually like that distribution, right? You know, those those thousand Safeway stores are going to come with a the hefty slotting bill in all likelihood. What's the payback period on that? And what do you what do you have to move to, you know, get through that payback period A, but also make sure that you're going to go stay on the shelf? Are is are the trade dollars that you're going to go spend on this thing going to create enough velocity for you to be competitive? But also if at the end of the day, is that equation going to contribute to the bottom line or contribute to your burn? And I think that those are those can be very difficult answers to arrive at. I mean, really big companies have entire teams of people that are just trying to analyze customer profitability and, you know, the efficacy of trade investment. So those can be difficult challenges to overcome, but it's so, so important, I think, for brands of, you know, CPG companies, really consumer companies in general of all sizes to focus on that, especially if if you're in the retail grocery space where, where that game is played. So I think, you know, that's one area that's that's really important to focus on and I think doesn't get enough airtime, if you will, over the uh, the shiny objects of kind of new packaging, new marketing trends or strategies, new distribution, new products. You know, all that's all that's kind of the, the bright, shiny object in this industry, but it's so easy to be led astray on a very unprofitable journey if those are the things you focus on at the expense of, you know, operational efficiency, ROI and uh, healthy margin, real real margin, not just uh, you know the manufacturing margin that that so many brands kind of present in their pitch books. What characteristics really define healthy distribution for a company and distribution that's potentially harmful? Well, first of all, you have to you have to sketch out what your strategy is. So you know, at the end of the day, if you're just if you're saying, "Hey, top line growth is our strategy," and then you've got a group of investors that say, hey, we're writing the checks, you go execute. All right. That's certainly a, a way to go do things. And that's certainly a way that a lot of companies got big. And you know, a lot of the, the big M&A exits that you see were, were built that way. So I'm not saying that's by any means a wrong way to do things. It's, it's clearly a very successful way of doing things for certain people. But I think those narratives get taken and championed. And those are the things that typically are what get people excited about coming into the industry. And, you know, again, as I said, those are the exceptions and not the rule, in my opinion. And so if you want to go pursue that strategy, that's fine. But you you need to have really deep pockets and, and really great access to capital. And if you do, then that's great. And in which case your distribution, you know, your question about what's the right distribution is what stores are going to are, are my key demographics going to be in? What stores are going to let me go get distribution in and hopefully that I can maintain a good enough velocity to stay in. And so that's, you know, an important question. There there are plenty of folks that had almost endless access to capital that blew up their business because they said all distribution is good distribution. So even if you do have that kind of endless access to capital, you know, you got to think about like, where does, where does this thing work? There was a company uh, years ago, five, six years ago, that's, that's still around, but has gone through a lot of 
about different permutations in the candy business. But I remember, you know, we knew a few of the folks that were investing in that deal and they just poured an enormous amount of money into it. Better for you, candy. And they were in Staples and they were in, you know, all the DSD kind of candy spots that super conventional players like Mars have control over. And they were footing the bill for all that. And so, you know, even there where you've got somebody that has an enormous amount of capital, you've really got to be judicious around, you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think that's the case, even if you look at the biggest uh, CPG conglomerates. Uh, what was it a month or two ago? Hershey's divested Crave, sold it back to the founders. And that's the same kind of deal, right? Where that's that's a good brand. You know, they were kind of one of the early ones to do better for you jerky, better for you meat, rode that wave well. But Hershey's got a hold of that thing and realized we have all this capital distribution. We can put it in all these Walmarts. We can put it in all these gas stations. But does the brand really fit there? Is that what's going to be appropriate? Or are we just going to be underwriting trade and slotting and, and EDLP dollars uh, till the cows come home to keep this thing on the shelf? When at the end of the day, it's not really going to to sustain itself in that shelf space. So I think that's that's really a big, important piece of the equation is, is this distribution going to long-term be something where this brand fits or this product series of products fit? And then if you're a, an operator or an entrepreneur that has maybe more modest capital needs or you know should be focusing on profitability, then that question is a lot simpler, which is, is this profitable distribution? And that's something that, that we spend a lot of time talking about is, you know, there's that you can slice and dice this stuff a lot of different ways, but ultimately, what's the cost of doing business with this customer? Are you going through a distributor to access that customer? And what's the pound of flesh that, that they're going to charge to go get there, including all the different hidden fees that you know are involved in, in getting the product on the shelf? So I think it's you, you've got to be really, really conservative when you think about that, in my opinion, because it's expensive to go maintain shelf space and it's really hard to, I think, cut losses when you spend big dollars to get that shelf space and you don't necessarily see the turns that you want to see or the cost of doing business continues to go up. So I would say those are the most important questions you've got to ask there. So when it comes to slotting fees, are those a necessary evil or do companies have room to negotiate or is there leverage for a fledgling food brand? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the answer is it, it depends. At, at some point, a company is going to have to look at that, particularly if it's like a high growth oriented company and say, yeah, it's a, it's a necessary evil. And that's okay. I mean, that's the grocery business has enough power where they're able to charge these types of fees to get a product on the shelf. And then uh, a brand has to ask themselves, is that worthwhile? I think spent a lot of time talking to different folks in terms of like, where, where should slotting live on a, on a P&L? Or can you kind of think about it as almost like a, a lease or something as opposed to a contra revenue line item? But ultimately, it's it's the cost of doing business. And if you want to go direct with big conventional customers, you're probably not going to get around that. That said, slotting can be traded out for free fill, which still a fixed trade item, but you know, can be a little bit more palatable to give product as opposed to cash. And you know, there's there's certainly opportunities for small up and coming burgeoning young brands that a buyer might get particularly taken with and they might be able to figure something out. But at some point, it's going to become unavoidable if you want to keep growing in conventional grocery. 
What role does future product innovation play in distribution strategy and the universe of stores that one might be the right fit for a given brand? My point of view on the industry and really on brands in general is every product, when you're talking about retail, every product, every brand has a universe of stores that it works in. And some are quite large and some are relatively small. And as you get to the edges of that universe, the ROI and continued expansion starts dropping precipitously for you. So I think it's important for investors, operators, entrepreneurs to really have a good appreciation for what does that universe of stores actually look like and have a a conservative approach there. Because if that's a 10,000 store universe and you've got a business plan that says we've got to go get to 20,000 stores for this thing to be interesting, that's a real problem. So I think a lot of folks get to that point and say, all right, well, our product development, our new product development strategy will allow us to continue to expand. So either be able to double down on that universe of stores that you work in and go get deeper distribution there and hopefully be able to meet or exceed the velocity metrics that your core products are hitting in in either the same category or different categories. Or you're going to add to your product offering in a way that expands that customer base. So that's I, I don't think that's the way that everybody does it. That's the way that I would recommend looking at it. I think a lot of uh, especially smaller brands get in trouble over skewing themselves, wanting to do a little bit of everything. You know, so often the food entrepreneur is chock full of great ideas and it can be easy to go pursue those ideas and say, you know, look at all this great stuff I have. But ultimately, I think it's so important to be focused on the product sets that you've got and then really, really be thoughtful around, okay, what's the next product line going to look like and how is it going to interact with our existing core demographic? Sometimes you see folks come up with completely disparate products. And I think it's okay to be in a different category, an adjacent category, whatever. But if you've got something where it's it's totally different demographics that are that are purchasing your product or or there's a totally different sort of appeal, then I think it can be difficult for those things to live under one brand umbrella. It can be difficult on your sales folks to be able to tell a cohesive story around it. You know, the most important thing is how do you think about what's going to add the most value? And then also, you know, how is it kind of going to be a cohesive evolution of new products that aren't just boondoggles, but actually make sense in the context of expanding your brand in the distribution that your brand works in? When it comes to assessing this universe of what stores that your product or brand is going to work in, where do you start? How do you gauge the, the potential of that? That can, be a, that can be a difficult thing to do. I think one of the challenges that arises is probably the vast majority of burgeoning young brands are getting their start to the extent they're in grocery. I mean, a lot of, a lot of folks are getting their start online, but to the extent you're, you're going into your grocery, you're getting your start in the natural channel. And the natural channel behaves very differently from the rest of grocery in, in a few key ways. If you're a natural, better for you brand, you can see really strong velocities there. We'll make up a, a unit velocity, but let's say you're you're moving five units per store per week per SKU, and you've got three or four SKUs on the shelf, and you know you're you're global in Whole Foods, and you know that you're doing great for the category. And you can look at that and say, boy, we're doing great. This this stuff is moving like crazy. 
or you know moving above average in the category. And you can base your continued growth plan on, yeah, we're going to keep getting stores and keep moving five units per store per week for these SKUs and these stores. So let's keep going. And then you, you start doing the, all right, well, we'll do KEDSD through Safeway or you, know, you start getting into the natural set for Kroger or, or those sorts of things. And velocity metrics start going down. And, and you start realizing that some of these conventional stores, you might be able to do a similar amount, but the pricing dynamics are much different. The, the shopping behavior, the consumer is much different. Demographics are different. And so it's kind of easy to go hit that invisible wall and realize, oh man, the velocity metrics I, I thought I could do aren't actually anywhere near what reality is suggesting to me. And then you can, you know, you're in a tough spot, which do you, do you say, all right, well, we're going to lower the price and take a lower margin, or we're going to sprinkle more trade dollars on it in a, in an effort to keep scaling and boost those numbers. But I think it's really hard for probably a lot of operators to be able to have a good faith dialed in answer to that without really testing those waters. So I think that's why it's, it can definitely be helpful to test those conventional stores early if you're a smaller brand or just take very, very conservative approaches to how you think you're going to be moving in one channel of retail versus the other. And you know, really spending a lot of time talking to your demographics. If you're selling online, that's great. You know, if you've got an email list, that's great. As much survey data and, and feedback data as you can get to really start thinking about why are people buying this brand? What are the driving factors behind it? What's kind of the purchasing criteria and, and the high hierarchy of that criteria and make some educated guesses around how those demographics are going to be shifting from one retailer to another. And then, you know, I think you you go from there. Um, you see a lot of brands shift their, their marketing, their, their packaging, their, their strategy when they start to become a big natural brand that wants to go play more in conventional because that messaging just has to be different. And quite often the, the cost structure needs to be a little different. So I think going in with your eyes wide open about that is important. So when I comes to increasing velocity, whether it's retail, natural, or more conventional. Are, are there any marketing activities or tactics that you've seen to really make an impact on improving that sales velocity? For sure. I mean, I think when you're in grocery and you're a burgeoning young brand that doesn't have maybe the household penetration of a more mature brand, ultimately the best thing in my experience has been getting a yellow tag up because especially in natural, you've got typically a little bit more product discovery than you're going to have in conventional, I think. And so if you can go have that yellow tag, it really does drive a significant amount of attention to your shelf space. And it can grab that person walking down the aisle, whatever category you're in that has an open mind and might want to try something new or has seen your brand before and is now willing to give it a shot. So even in natural, where arguably got consumers that are a little bit less price sensitive than in other channels, the ability to have a yellow tag that jumps off the shelf and, and offers a deal is still really compelling. And that's obviously a, a variable trade investment. So I think those things are important. Off-shelves, of course, go, go hand in hand with that, where if you can either have some sort of deal with the retailer where you get additional placement, off-shelf placement, or if your brand or product lends itself to a sort of spur of the moment, 
being near the cash register kind of thing, you know, you see just enormous upticks in your velocity. And the hope is with those tactics is you see those big spikes, they're going to come down a little bit, but hopefully at a much higher plateau. And so that's ultimately that trial driving tactic that you want to see is you're kind of feeding the flywheel there. I think ultimately for a lot of these smaller companies, those are going to be the best tactics from the standpoint of in-store velocity increases that you can go measure the investment against. There's certainly other types of marketing approaches that you can go do, all sorts of different couponing approaches, all sorts of different participation in various retailer and distributor-driven programs. But I think that typically those are going to be at best a little bit more of an ephemeral value add than you know what you're going to see when you do those sort of in-store tactics or in-store activations. And I'd add to the in-store piece demos, of course. So all that stuff is not without cost. And ultimately, that's the game that you need to play is you figure out what's palatable, what's profitable, or what you're willing to do to get there and then what those velocity targets might be. In this industry, especially, there's plenty of people who are quick to give the advice that you should be launching a brand rather than launching a product. What's your take on that? Looking through the lens of the P&L at brand building that may not yield quantifiable results ever, but especially not in the short term. Yeah, I mean, this might be a little contrarian to say, but uh, at the end of the day, look at your balance sheet and just appreciate that your goodwill ain't worth shit. Until somebody's going to come by with a big old check for you that says it is, it's not. And I think that that's what you have to remember is so many people get caught up in like, our brand is special. It means something. It represents me or represents my value system, what have you. And all that's great. And you should have integrity around what your brand means. And by all means, you should have a brand story and you should have values. But you just have to appreciate that those things have no tangible value until somebody who writes checks says they do. And so the only only way, in my opinion, that you can go create real value under that umbrella is to have products that carry that brand name that back up what you're saying. Anybody can go walk next door to the nearest creative agency and say, build me a cool brand and come up with some brand story. And there's a lot of talented creative people that can go do that for you. And those things are a dime a dozen, quite frankly. If you don't have products that are carrying that brand that back that up from the standpoint of movement, from the standpoint of engagement with the consumer, from the standpoint of profitability and healthy margin, the brand's not worth anything. And, and I think that that's something quite often that's it's a narrative in the industry that doesn't do any favors to the up and coming entrepreneurs. I think it's maybe a little rough to say, but you have to be disabused that notion. If there aren't good fundamentals there, just because you've got a cool brand means nothing. I mean, that's my, that's my point of view on it. And I think ultimately, if you want to go build a brand that has enterprise value, then you have to have interesting, profitable products that move off the shelf or that move through e-commerce or that move through food service. I mean, whatever whatever channels you're playing in, you've got to have products that, that move and make you money because otherwise, I'm not sure what you're doing it for. While it might be contrarian to the overarching messaging that people are pushing in this industry, it makes perfect sense that if you have this brand brand story, it doesn't mean anything if you're not backing it up with the products that you're selling or if it's actually doing something for you to move product. 
Yeah. And, and I'd also add to that. There are a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, have this grand brand story. And if I'm a consumer walking down the aisle and I look at it and I evaluate it in my split second evaluation of whether or not I want that, that grand brand story is oftentimes nowhere to be seen. So how do you think about what are the driving factors of what makes this interesting and why I should buy it? And how are you articulating that on the packaging so that I as the consumer can digest that communication in a moment or two? You can go read the story on their website or if you go see them at a trade show or you meet one of the demo people or you otherwise hear about the brand, they'll tell you about all these great things the brand's going to do for you. But the vast majority of experiences with the brand are going to be had at whatever the point of sale is or the uh, the point of distribution. And if you can't communicate that really, really succinctly and in a way that aligns with what the primary purchasing criteria are for the primary demographic, then that brand story is doing nothing for you. So when you're evaluating a potential investment, Trace, for example, did that brand or the Goodwill or how they communicated about the brand influence those conversations at all with the valuation? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's always part of the conversation, right? Because, uh, you know, the brand is, is relevant and everyone's always proud of their brand as, as they should be. But I think what was interesting to me is I, I thought the Trace Latin core products were very good, very interesting. And I thought that they were very unique. And so the, the core product there is what's called a, a pupusa, which is corn moss exterior with different fillings in there. And it's, it's a Latin foods brand, but premium born in Whole Foods in the natural channel. So, you know, it's, it's frozen, it's convenient, it's better for you. It's got unique food product offerings but with familiar Latin flavors and it's highly incremental. So it's for these buyers that are constantly looking at their planograms and thinking about, you know, what do I need to put on the shelf? Ultimately, they they want something that's going to get an incremental additional dollar in there. If they're going to do the paperwork and trade out one product for another, they don't want to just be subbing the same dollar in and out. They want something that's going to add to their productivity and profitability of their category. But then they also want to be able to expand the dollars that are hitting their category. And so if you can go tell a story around incrementality and uniqueness and, you know, Kroger buyer shared with us once that per their data, it's its its own occasion, meaning you've got somebody coming in there and, and whether the product's on sale or not, there's not another product that they're going to buy instead of it, as opposed to one vegan burrito from one brand next to another vegan burrito from another brand. Those two vegan burritos probably sell based off of which one's on sale and which one's not on sale. And so if you can think about, all right, you're, you're going in this category, what's what's going to be incremental and what's going to be kind of unique? And is that a story that we can go tell to, to buyers and consumers? That's ultimately going to be interesting. So if you have a brand that has a series of products that you know meet that criteria, then I think that's great. And the brand can certainly be additive in telling that story, but you can't get it backwards. And so you've got the uniqueness of Trace Latin, you've got a strong brand that doubles down on what the product actually is. What else makes them an attractive uh, business to SBG or just generally speaking, what, what makes an attractive food packaged brand attractive to you guys? We're now looking for things that we can vertically integrate into our operation or that are vertically integrated because we're very focused on margin and profitability and don't really see how you can have a lot of control over that if those things are outsourced, if your manufacturing is outsourced. Now, 
not to say that's not a viable business model, just not what we're focused on. So that's a big piece of, of our focus. And then I think, you know, we're looking for, again, products or brands that can have that incrementality in a particular category. And we're also looking for channel mix diversification. So, you know, one of the things that, that Trace has been able to start to do is, is have food service applicability as well as retail applicability. And because you're manufacturing it yourself, you can start to do those kinds of like food service type packs. With our healthy snacking brand, Wildmade, we're able to do a substantial amount of online business, Amazon and e-commerce. And so being able to diversify from your retail side is great. And I think it's it's really important in this business, especially now. Retail can be a brutally tough business to go operate in. And I've talked to a lot of investors, operators in the space that said, ah, you know, they're getting tired of the grocery thing. They want to go do food service. And I know folks that successfully kind of pivoted in that direction. And then COVID happens, basically eliminates <laughs> all food service as a channel. <laughs> and then you say, boy, I wish I had that. I wish I had that retail volume. And so I think like there are positives and negatives to every channel. But if you can go have diversity in your channel mix, then you're not so beholden to the dynamics that exist in those different channels. So that's a big piece of the puzzle for us as well. And then, you know, really just thinking about there's so many things that are sort of flashes in the pan or, or very focused on an ingredient or trend that's just in vogue for a moment. And so I think that that's the other thing is, is there some, is there some longevity here or are you seeing kind of like just really, really high trend driven buying that might disappear a year from now. So I think those are the big things that it initially got us interested in looking at a company. So beyond trade marketing, has there been anything that has really moved the needle from a marketing standpoint for Trace or any brands that you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, trademarking is certainly relevant. I think it's kind of just it's it's part of the administrative work of doing this stuff. Ultimately, you want to make sure that you're communicating your primary value adds to the right demographic. And so any type of survey data or feedback data that you can get from the consumer is super helpful. And you can spend a fortune doing that stuff or you can do it in a really scrappy way. And then there's you know, there's options for everything in between. But if you're going to go spend the money to go tie yourself to a particular, you know, style of packaging or style of font or communication strategy where, you know, in CPG, you've got those are big inventory commitments quite often. So you want to have some degree of confidence around this is what we're communicating and why and to whom, because you don't want to get tied to that stuff, get down the road and realize, oh man, no one realizes the core value out of this product. I mean, a simplistic example is like, hey, we're we're gluten-free and we didn't really announce that uh, sufficiently on the packaging, right? Or more nuanced thing would be, hey, we're really zeroing in on the messaging that we're an organic brand, but maybe it matters more that we're, we're vegan or we're non-GMO or we're gluten-free. So I mean, just like having some kind of idea of what's going to resonate 
resonate the most with the consumers that you're selling to, I think is really important. And I think that, you know, again, folks that are super close to their brand or super close to their products quite often can make the mistake of thinking that they're selling to themselves or that they intimately know their consumer because they birthed this brand or this product. And I would just urge folks to go stress test that idea in whatever way they can and make sure that their communication strategy around that is succinct and focused on the few kind of one or two or three things that are going to be relevant in that grocery environment or if you're selling online in that first sort of engagement with the brand that a consumer might have. Well, this has been an insanely insightful and just information-packed episode. I think you've got so much experience in the industry and just the perspective outside of the industry to what really makes uh food business or really any packaged good business successful? Obviously, I love chatting about this stuff. I think that as an industry, we can do better for a lot of the entrepreneurs that are in the space to talk openly about you know, what's the real cost to doing business and what are the real opportunities here and not just kind of giving out the attaboys where, oh, you got a new regional Whole Foods, good for you, but saying, hey, is this actually a profitable enterprise that you're going and pursuing? You know, I think you see so many folks that are pouring friends and family money into their business or, or their own funds with the hope of striking it rich. And I think that, you know, the more that we can talk about, hey, there, there might be a more disciplined, sustainable way of, of building businesses here that we that we should be promoting to these type of entrepreneurs. I, I think those are conversations that, that we should be having because the venture style approach at the end of the day works with a small minority of these companies. And food does not scale like software. It just doesn't. And so you can go build a big profitable business in this industry, but it takes time and it takes a certain level of operational focus and discipline. And, you know, I think it's it's important not to be flippant about these things or just encourage everybody to be chasing the shiny object, but really coming back to, you know, are the, are the things you're doing going to contribute to your bottom line? And if they're to the entrepreneur, out there that are getting the advice, you can't worry about the bottom line. You got to just go find scale. I would run in the opposite direction of that advice unless it's coming with a big check. And everyone's got opinions about your brand. Everyone's got opinions about the product. But unless they're sitting there funding your operation, I think you've really got to think about what's going to ensure that you're going to be able to be continuing to sell stuff six months from now, a year from now, and be putting food in your mouth. So that's kind of my thoughts around the industry and certainly the entrepreneurial end of the spectrum of it. This is a tough industry. And I mean, we've had guests on the show who had promising businesses that a couple of years later are, are no longer around. So it's a, it's a tough reality and things that, that absolutely need to be, to be said and learned. Uh, hopefully not the hard way when it's too late. So uh, a couple wrap up questions here. Are there any books you've read in the past that have influenced your thinking on marketing or business or leadership? In terms of uh, life, leadership, entrepreneurship, really enjoyed Atomic Habits. Read that recently, uh, James Clear. That's been great in terms of like the, the life side of things, spiritual side of things. Book called uh, Awareness has been very influential to me. And then there's there's some classics, of course, like Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. But those are three that come to mind off the top of my head. Awesome. And then last question here, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself as you were just starting SPG? <laughs> 
be way more conservative in the way that I think about investing in growth programs and, and in companies in general, but also I would say patience. You know, so many of the mistakes that I've made in my career thus far, I think were in an effort to this feeling like, you know, I want the success or I want the win or I want this or that tomorrow, right? I want it next day. I want it next year. And I think that if you can really think about what are the good systems to put in place, what are the good habits to put in place, and really focus on trying to engineer those systems backed up with a set of principles that, that you can keep falling back on, then you're going to keep chipping away at those things. But if you allow yourself to be overly outcome focused, you're going to keep being disappointed or you're going to make moves that might not be as judicious as they should be. Whereas if you think about the systems that you're putting in place, any number of outcomes might be great. So don't get overly focused on one particular outcome. Just get focused on getting up every day and and doing the best that you can to build a better mousetrap. And and the rest will come probably in ways that that you'd never be able to predict. Really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been an amazing interview. Michael Silverman, Managing Director of SBG, podcast host. Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? Go listen to your podcast or check out what SBG and its brands have going on. Yeah. So website is samanthabrands.group. Our co-packing website's uh, naturalfoodworks.com. You can see Trace Latin at tracelatinfoods.com, wildmade at wildmadesnacks.com. So that's all out there. And you can follow my podcast on Instagram, What Didn't Kill You. Again, you can listen and subscribe to that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the big ones there. So yeah, that's it for me. All right. You were the man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. You have a great day. And that is going to conclude our interview with Michael. I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Michael has a ton of wisdom and insights to offer. And if you want to learn more about him or hear more of what he has to say, I would highly recommend going to check out his podcast, which we will link out to in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, please go to wherever you're getting your podcasts, throw us a subscribe or give us a review. Let us know what you think. Thanks again, everybody. And we will catch you all next week. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources, head to foodmarketingnerds.com. Food Marketing Nerds.